Welcome to a special SSP Annual Meeting edition of the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for June 6, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Well, this year's SSP Annual Meeting got off to a provocative start yesterday with a keynote address by Tim O'Reilly, the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media. O'Reilly's company is often considered a case study among publishers in how to survive and thrive in a marketplace where technological change is rapidly altering the playing field. He has also recently increased his direct participation in scholarly publishing as a seed funder and board member of the new open access journal Peer J. His keynote address focused on how a new generation of sensor-equipped devices, coupled with the software and data to drive services on them, are poised to reshape a wide range of workflows, including those in the scholarly communication world. O'Reilly was gracious enough to give a few minutes to the podcast after his keynote. Here's that chat. Okay, Tim O'Reilly, thanks for taking a few minutes after a very interesting and provocative talk. Uh, I should mention for full disclosure that I've been a very happy user of O'Reilly books myself for around 20 years or so. I still get a bit misty in the eyes when I think about uh, my first copy of the Camel book, uh, Programming Pearl, which you mentioned in the Q&A. So it's a particular pleasure for me to be talking to you today. Oh, that's great. Uh, I have a soft spot for that book myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, watching your own career, uh, one is struck by how much the growth of uh, the O'Reilly media enterprise lies uh, outside of publishing, uh, in conferences, in education, etc. You talked a bit in your keynote about how the sort of organizing principle of all of this was the notion of spreading the knowledge of innovators, as I recall, uh, as a sort of unifying uh, corporate mission. What does that experience have to say to some organizations in the scholarly space, for example, small uh, nonprofit scientific societies that have built a lot of their viability on their publishing operations? Does your experience of sort of, you know, diversifying your operation, if you will, have any lessons for them? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, the thing that we did best was we remembered that we weren't a book publisher. I mean, this is a truism of, of management. You know, they, you know, say if the railroads had realized they were transportation companies, they would have become airlines. Of course, that would have been a worse business, but, you know, you don't always get it right. I think, you know, we have focused on uh, just finding things that are interesting. It's been a little bit different for me as a, as a, founder, owner of a company. You know, my original business model was interesting work for interesting people. I just wanted to make a living doing stuff that I liked and became very successful along the way. But I never put the money first. Uh, I I sometimes use the analogy of, uh, you know, life or business is like a road trip. You know, you know you have to stop for gas, but your business is not a tour of gas stations. And a lot of people think that their business is a tour of gas stations. And of course they're, you know, they're struggling because that's not a very, very interesting place to visit, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I've always just tried to go do things that were interesting, and that's led me into new areas, some of which lost me money and some of which made me a lot of money and some of which just kind of uh, hobbled along. But I was never driven by, you know, oh, let's do this product because we'll make a lot of money at it. It was driven by, wow, this is a really cool area that people really need something. And and I, I think the best advice to any scholarly publisher is go back to your mission. Go back to who are you trying to serve? You know, and it's quite possible that if you can't find a good answer to that, 
you know, you should go out of business. You know, but if you have uh, a real audience, a real community, uh, and you, you really ask them and engage with them about, and you think very hard about what can you do for them, they'll they'll find a way to pay you because you're valuable to them. Yeah, that that actually goes to a point that really had uh, resonance, I thought, in in, what you, in your in your keynote. Uh, that it's not just about the content; uh, it's about the people who create it, and and the sort of notion that these. Uh, that these organizations have a real asset in that direct uh, customer relationship. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really critical. I, I know for so many publishers, uh, they're really struggling now because they never did build that direct relationship. Uh, or at O'Reilly, we were always a direct uh, company. We actually started out as a direct mail business uh, and, and then direct uh, selling to corporations. We were I think uh, nine or ten million dollars in revenue before we discovered bookstores, or they just rather they discovered us. Mm-hmm. So we've always sort of had that bias towards direct. Uh, I have to say I don't think we've continued to execute on that as well as as we need to in today's world. I think you know obviously we still have a you know we have a big direct business, but I think we could do even better. Well, let's talk a little bit about PeerJ, uh, for which you've provided funding and support. How did you get involved with that venture? What And what sort of has attracted you to that model uh, in particular in thinking about open access? Well, you know, in general, I've been interested in the challenges and problems of uh, open science. Uh, we've worked with uh, Nature on an event called uh, Science Food Camp, which we hold at Google. Food Camp stands for Friends of O'Reilly. It's, it's really the what's now called an unconference where you bring interesting people together and they talk about whatever they find interesting. Uh, so I, I, I kind of been following the science area and, and as a result following, you know, the discussions about open access. Uh, I'm not quite sure who brought PeerJ into our venture firm. Uh, I really liked it. And we actually invested as O'Reilly media as well as, uh, O'Reilly Alphatech ventures, because first of all, I think that, uh, Pete and Jason are really smart about the data. They had done this amazing analysis of the characteristics of the market that allowed them to offer the, what seems this absurdly low price. And I'm not sure how much of it they, that they share, but I was just sort of blown away by the sophistication of their model. And to me, you know, that's one of the big things in publishing. You know, we, we have these sort of very blunt tools about how we're going to make money. And I think uh, Pierre J had some really good insight that you could offer a very low price and, uh, and still make money. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, since this is, I guess, you with your venture capital hat on, um, how do you, how, how would you sort of think about metrics of success for something like Pierre J, both from the point of view of, of the broad goals of open access and sort of more, more uh, narrowly in the venture capital sense? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I would be very happy if it became half as successful as Plus One. And there's a, there's a, uh, a fabulous line I remember, um, you know, early in my publishing career from a, a guy named Henry McGilton. And he, he had uh, what he called the three F's of publishing, which was first, fabulous, or F'd. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, PeerJ is fabulous, and so I think they're going to they're going to do really well, and that's that's how I would measure that. But I also think, in general, I'd love to see more publishers realizing that open access versus closed is not a binary condition. 
you know, I, I think so many people are afraid and they make things black and white that actually have incredible color to them. And, uh, you know, what we see, you know, you look at, look at for example, uh, um, digital music. The music labels just fought it, fought it, fought it. And now we see all these different ways that that business is evolving. And it could have evolved a lot faster if people had not been kind of like, well, it's basically about it's all free or it's all locked up. No, it's like people, we have to make it easy for people. And again, that's what we've followed with our approach to DRM and ebooks. We've, we go, you know, consumer, DRM has nothing to do with what the consumer wants. All it is is protecting the publisher. There's something wrong with that. You've got to figure out, is this good for my customer? And we decided it wasn't. And we actually, as we started to do it, we discovered it was not, it was actually really good for our business. Uh, and, you know, for every sale we possibly lost because somebody got a pirated copy, uh, we gained three sales because of the convenience. Well, in your keynote, you talked about the concept of uh, peer production, and I think you cited Peer J as an example of that. Could you talk just a bit about what peer production, how you view peer production, and what it is, and how it's at work in Peer J? Peer production is this notion of. Uh, you know, collective creation of work product. Uh, you know, when you look at something like Wikipedia, it's built by, uh, you know, uh, a set of people. Um, you know, open source software. Uh, there, there's sort of these new rules for how you build build collective works. It used to be that you had to do it uh, through a firm, you know, or a government. And and the internet has provided these new mechanisms where you create some kind of lightweight architecture of participation, as I call it. And, uh, you know, people just come and they, they work together because they want to. And, you know, I guess I wouldn't necessarily call out Peer J specifically as an example of that so much as I would call out the whole enterprise of science. The fundamental enterprise of science is peer production. You know, we build on the work of others. And there's been a dangerous shift in our thinking about uh, basic research where universities are focused on we well we want to commercialize this we want to figure out how we're going to make money off it and uh, I think we're going to regret that because ultimately this is one of the great products of Western culture is our intellectual uh, system of knowledge sharing and you know what what I worry is because people who built businesses around the edge of that enterprise are trying to protect those businesses, they're actually undercutting the fundamental enterprise. Now, there's always been a tension between, you know, people trying to protect their work. You know, you look at the battles between Newton and Leibniz over calculus and who got precedence. And, you know, it's not like it used to be kumbaya and now it's, you know, people fighting tooth and claw. It's always been people fighting tooth and claw. But on the whole, we had a balance towards, you know, dissemination, building on the work of others. And uh, I think we've gotten out of balance too far in the direction of we must protect intellectual property. We must turn everything into property. So one theme you sounded uh, was the need to experiment and find what you called the minimum viable product. Could you talk a bit about what the minimum viable product is and what some examples of this kind of incremental experimentation are that you've seen either in publishing or elsewhere that you have been particularly impressed by? Probably the best example in publishing of minimum viable product is a company called Logos Bible Software. They basically create electronic editions of uh, you know works that would be relevant to Bible scholars. Like they say, wow, here's this 1880 Hebrew dictionary, you know, by a German scholar so and so. How many of you would like a digital edition? 
and they built they built something long before Kickstarter. It was very Kickstarter like, where you basically bid to have this product created. And uh, I think you know there's a minimum viable product, just simply a promise to do something. And and I think if you look at the whole Kickstarter phenomenon, it's so fundamental. You know what a great inversion of the model. You know where we right now we produce something and we then discover after the fact that nobody wanted it. Whereas Kickstarter, you discover before you produce the product whether people want it or not. And you have some products that don't get funded, and you have some products that you know get way way oversubscribed. How awesome is that? I mean. Publishers should be all over Kickstarter or the Kickstarter model. You talked also uh, a lot uh, about the need to sort of be prepared for much more disruptive change and that systems that are being built today involving sensors, data, communications, and kind of mashing all of this up are going to totally change the way uh, everything happens, but even, you know, scholarly communication uh, one interesting thing, though, that some of us have discovered is that in many ways our, the audience for uh, scholarly publishing products uh, who might be really sort of cutting edge in their own scholarship is profoundly and, you know, sort of surprisingly conservative with respect to publication. They're still focused on traditional pages. Uh, they, they, you know, gravitate toward PDFs when they gravitate toward uh, electronic formats. They're, uh, they're resistant to sort of new approaches to how papers are written and presented, and they're very much driven by impact factor in where they publish because that's what, you know, the tenure committees are looking at, et cetera. So how does one think about reinventing the future of scholarly communications in that kind of environment? Well, there are a couple of observations I would make. And one is that there are people who have broken out of that model and become, you know, say, science celebrities of various kinds. I had a really great uh, example of this at our science food camp. Uh, I, I think I'll, I'll leave the names out because uh, <laughs> to protect the, the, the people involved. It was a hallway conversation I observed and uh, was a conversation with uh, an MIT professor uh, about the new field of synthetic biology. And he was, you know, somebody just said, what do you do? And he started explaining synthetic biology. And the other attendee said, oh, that's just like what so-and-so does because he'd heard about so-and-so. And so-and-so, he said, he was my grad student. You know, <laughs> uh, you know in other words, I was there first. You know, we started working on this. You know, but the, the grad student had become more famous than the professor, you know, at least to the, you know, to the Internet, you know, literate person. And I, I do think that things like that are signs of change in uh, impact factor. Uh, you know, when Bonnie Basser gives a talk at TED on quorum sensing in bacteria, you know, it may not have the kind of impact factor that some publication in, you know, by tenure, com- but I, I bet at some point people in a tenure committee go, wow, she's famous. You know, she's had two million people look at her talk. You know, I think we, 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 should, we should promote her. You know, it's hard to believe that those things aren't going to have an impact, you know. And so I do think that, that Internet famous will apply to science as well. Well, just to conclude, one phrase that you've become sort of known for is create more value than you capture. Finding ways to create value with traditional publishing operations changing so rapidly seems, uh, to me at least, to be maybe the central issue in scholarly publishing right now. 
you have seen a lot of changes in publishing over the years and have been at the forefront of many. Do you have any suggestions from your own experience, you know, just to wrap up, or that of others, uh, on how to find those new sources of value in a market that's changing so rapidly? You know, you changed what I said in the way you framed the question. You said, find new sources of value, which suggests that what you're doing is you're looking for value that you can capture. I really mean it when I say create more value than you capture. You know, give away your ideas. The business ideas will appear, you know, like when we do, I remember years ago, I gave a talk at a publishing conference. It was called the Waterside Publishing Conference. It was, you know, computer book publishers. And the buyer at Borders, you know, came up to me after my talk and she said, you realize that you just gave all of your competitors their program for the next year, (laughs) you know? And I said, yeah, I don't really care. And we also did a, a very early on one of my, you know, sort of, quote, marketing coups was to create a bibliography. I was trying to get, yeah, bookstores to carry books on Unix and the internet and so on. And uh, I wrote this bibliography that had all the best books from all the publishers, including my competitors. And, and they were like, are you crazy? But what did it do? It actually grew the category. They allocated more shelf space to it. And I got my share of that. And yes, I created value for other publishers as well. But why do I care? You know, if everybody does better and I do better, I'm happy. You know, so it's it's kind of a mindset thing. I, I feel like people are in this, you know, zero-sum game. And, you know, you have to get out of that zero-sum game and, and just start to say, wow, how do we make interesting things happen? If you make interesting things happen, the rest will follow. Well, Tim O'Reilly, thanks very much. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks uh, for talking with me. And thank you for dropping into this special edition of the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for June 6, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine, coming to you from the 2013 SSP Annual Meeting in San Francisco. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the Scholarly Kitchen, bon appétit.